Um, If you would, please turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is where we will be today as we consider together again another glimpse of uh, who God is and how we are to live in light of Him. There is something so precious that if you have it, if it's truly yours, then no matter what you've done, God can make you whole again. You can be put back together. The very darkest night can become flooded with light. Sorrow can be traded for joy. Guilt gone and grace ushered in. Shattered dreams transformed into new beginnings. Doesn't that sound great? That's not a pipe dream. That's not something of Hollywood. That's a character trait of God. It's called His mercy. God is a merciful God. To receive mercy is to be on the receiving end of the favor of God. Mercy, then, is God's graciousness towards us. It's to personally know the compassion of God. And I truly believe, in a unique and powerful way, that God would like to visit us today with His compassion. Mercy exists because God exists. Without God, there would not be something called mercy. Mercy is the tributary that flows into the ocean of God's forgiveness. Human beings are people that deserve, rightly, nothing but the wrath of God. But God, because He's merciful, is going to offer you today His compassion instead. In light of our recent experiences as a church family, I want to encourage us today to think personally about our need for mercy collectively and then individually. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this talk will give you insight into what we as people, what we as Christians hold incredibly dear. And that's something called the gospel. The truth that we don't deserve the mercy of God, but He offers it to us in Christ. So I hope that you'll hear this today as what we consider the most important message that it could ever be given. And everyone, we live in a time that emphasizes personal freedom and autonomy as the highest good. It is the greatest possible truth. It is the greatest possible freedom that we could aspire to. Therefore, what makes something right is simply you having a desire to do it. That's all. And that is something, a truth, a truth concept that we're willing to perhaps even die for. But one of the many problems with that view is that it necessarily ignores the painful consequences that come with bad decisions. Because if whatever I want is the highest good, then we'll tend to ignore the consequences that come with those decisions. Today, as we unfold the scriptures, I hope that you'll See, by the grace of God, how silly that is. And how in Christ we're offered not a more difficult way, but a better way. 
a more loving way, a more joy-producing way. So mercy, before we read the chapter together, let's consider the context. We're going to consider a man named David and the time in his life when perhaps he needed mercy the most. If you know the story, I hope you will uh, provide me with a little grace to take a few moments and describe to you the setting that Psalm 51 was written in. David was a king over the nation of Israel. And we know more about him and his story literally than virtually any ancient ruler of any nation. Incredible amount of data we have on this man named David. David was one of the greatest men who ever lived. Roughly 3,000 years after his death, we're still talking about him. Now, some of you are important, of course, but do you realize that's not going to happen with you? No one's going to be talking about you in 3,000 years. Nobody's going to even remember your name. But David isn't like that. David is well known. The Bible calls Jesus a son of David. And he says that, scriptures say that Jesus sits on David's throne forever. That's a pretty big deal, right? David was a poet, he was an artist, he was a musician, he was a leader, he was courageous and brave. He was an extremely successful soldier. But more important than all of that, the scriptures tell us that David was a man after God's heart. But David was also a person in tremendous need of mercy, just like you and I are in need of mercy. Despite all his wonderful qualities, David made a really horrible decision. And that decision led to a whole series of subsequent decisions. If you don't know the story, you can find it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But here's essentially what happened. King David was up on the rooftop of his house, lounging around when he should have been out on the battlefront. And while he was up there, he saw a naked woman taking a bath. As king, his house sat higher And I have stood on the ruins of that palace. And it is up a slope looking down on the rest of the valley. He probably wasn't up there looking for her. He was probably just up there. But his house sat higher so he could look down. And his sin wasn't being tempted. His sin wasn't even seeing this woman and thinking, wow, she's beautiful. His sin was what happened after that. It was the decision made which you and I will face every single day. Will I turn away or will I stare? And he chose to stare. His sin was the decision to look longer, to gaze up and down her body, and then to engage his lust by finding out more information about her. Friends, sexual temptation is all around us. You literally do not have to go looking for it. It will be sure to find you. Do you have any question about that? I hope not. Because it is literally everywhere. Every moment of every day, when the temptation comes, you will make a choice. And those choices collectively 
will determine your sexual story. All of us have one. I have begun asking men in particular not, uh, are you ever tempted with porn? But when was the last time you fell prey? No one wakes up and decides one day, today's the day I'm going to have an affair. Today's the day I'm going to fall to someone that I don't even know their name. Those decisions are made long before that choice is ever made. So David learns that Bathsheba is her name and that she's Uriah's wife. And then after he has that knowledge, he says, bring her to me. Why? Because he knows Uriah's gone. Uriah's out in battle. Uriah's out where David should have been. So he brings her, and the details are certainly not necessary. They have a sexual encounter. He sends her home, and he got what he wanted, washed his hands clean, and thought it was over. But then he got the call, the text the email, the tweet. David, I'm pregnant. Now long before the wonder and marvel of abortion, long before that heinous option was available, you had to deal with the consequences. You didn't get to pretend and cover them up. So David concocted a plan. I'm going to bring Uriah back from battle, pretend to be interested in the things going on in his life, and then send him home to be with his wife. Surely no soldier away in battle would resist a night with his wife, right? But Uriah was so honorable to his God and so dedicated to his fellow soldiers that he refused to go home. So imagine David tossing and turning that night. So then, as sin always does when you don't face it with truth, it requires you to dig a little deeper. So David concocted yet another plan. I will get Uriah sloppy drunk. And then, surely then, his primal male instincts will kick in and he'll go home. But not even that worked. So we had to dig yet another layer deeper into lie and sin and deceit. And this is what I find to be the lowest point in the story. David writes a letter that says, move Uriah to the front lines where he'll be killed. And then no one will know that he didn't go home and sleep with his wife. So everyone will merely assume this child is his. And then he physically hands the letter to Uriah. And Uriah unknowingly carries his own death sentence back to the battlefield. Can you imagine? Yes, you can. Because you've done things just like that. And I have done things just like that. Premeditated, awful evil. Now surely David, as he stood on the palace roof, never imagined I would hand a death sentence 
over. But friends, that's what sin does. It leads you deeper into stuff you never dreamed you would do. Now Uriah's dead and Bathsheba's getting big and David thinks this is covered up. I've made it. Uriah dies, no one will ever know. Have you lived in that place in those moments? I think the majority of my teenage years were lived in that place. That horrible, dreadful, awful space between knowing you really made a big mistake and waiting to be found out. That is a miserable existence. Is it, is it not? Yeah. The fear. When am I going to be found out? Everywhere you go knowing, I'm a fake. I'm phony. I'm fooling nobody. It's going to come out eventually. Surely David had to feel all of that stuff. Friends, only a greater fear can trump that fear. Only an awe of God can cause you to come clean with what you've done. There is an appropriate point of of feeling afraid over sin, but that's not the place you want to live. The place to live is with an awe and respect of God. A God who knows already, and a God who says when this is brought into the light, when you're honest, then you'll find mercy. So that's the setting. And months go by, and a prophet named Nathan comes, and he tells a wonderful, brilliant little tale, sets the hook deep, and tells David, you've blown it. And David, in response, writes these words. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you don't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. 
the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In just a few minutes, I would encourage you to consider with me God's mercy seen in this psalm in five specific things. Let me just run through them and then I want to walk through each of them. God's mercy is seen here in the rebuke in what lied behind this psalm. God's mercy is seen in an awareness that David developed. God's mercy is seen in the forgiveness that David knew would be offered and that David received. God's mercy is seen in joy, which we'll talk in depth about. And strangely, shockingly, God's mercy seen in mission. So rebuke, awareness, forgiveness, joy, mission. Let's just start at the top. God's mercy is seen in the rebuke from a true friend. Friend, the most loving thing that can be done for someone who's hiding in sin is to bring him or her into the light. So I would just encourage, not first by pointing a finger at any of you, but by pointing it back at myself. If you see me in sin I am unaware of, or I have not come clean about, if I've done something in defiance of God's word, then publicly I would invite all of you to love me enough to come to me and tell me. One of the things I love the most about Church on Mill is over the years as I have said that to you, many of you have done that. And now it's become not uncommon for someone to say to me, Chuck, that was really dumb. Chuck, would you consider how that came off? Chuck, would you pray about that course of action? Chuck, would you wash your mouth out with a bar of soap? (laughs) Friends, I would urge you, please, by God's grace, tell me to repent. To not do that when you see an issue is a sign of hatred, not of love. It's a sign of lack of care, not of investment. We are forever people in need of God's mercy through one another offering love and care. The church must exhibit something that will cause you to break out in hives if you're not used to it. But it's intentional, loving intrusiveness. What you most need is not to drive home and open the garage door and close it before you ever get out of your car and go in and watch Netflix alone And come back here next Sunday and do it again and again and again. That is drinking down poison every day. The thing you most need is people up in your business. Intentional, loving intrusiveness for your good and the glory of God. I am a better man than I would ever have been. Because... You come to me and you jab me 
And you love me enough to tell me you're an idiot and I love you for it. And there is a better way. We all need Nathans, people who will lovingly and consistently help us to hate sin and love the Savior. The two must go together. Nathan did David a huge favor. He told him he was wrong, and he told him to repent. So I would ask you in a general way, who are your Nathans or your Nathanettes? Who are you willing to be a Nathan to? Friends, if we're willing to love each other enough to gently ask questions and rebuke each other over the little sins, then we'll be far more likely not to make it to the big ones. If it's normal for us to care for one another in the little stuff of everyday life, perhaps there won't be the gigantic fall with consequences that last for years. How do we see hidden sin in our lives? Usually it's not by osmosis. Usually it's not by sitting alone and reading our Bibles. It's by friends. It's by brothers and sisters. It's by Christian community. That's why we make membership, gospel communities, one-on-one investing in each other's lives here so important because we so badly need it and we're mercifully, wonderfully compassionate to each other when we give it. Church, we all need Nathans. To be a Christian is to pledge that I want to be a Nathan and to invite others to be Nathans to me. That's what brother and sister in Christ means. So I would encourage you to pursue membership if you haven't, to seek out a gospel community, to open yourself up to the care and love and correction of others. There's lots of great resources to encourage you to do that. Places like Psalm 51 are great. There is a book back at the bookstall on the top of the coffee bar called Wider Than Snow, Meditations on Sin and Mercy. These are five-minute reads that simply go through Psalm 51 over and over and over and over and over again. This is perhaps one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. Is there someone who'd like a copy of Psalm 51 as unpacked by Ty Cole? Come on up. Give him some. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers got a hug. <laughs> there are six, seven copies back there. Ten dollars. Ty gets none of that. And I hope they're gone and that you'll really consider this. God's mercy is seen in the rebuke. That is the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God for God to point out to you what you don't see on your own. God's mercy is also seen in the beautiful, amazing, precious awareness of sin that David gained and that you can gain when people come to you. When we truly come to grips with what sin is, we see it not just as an action here or there, but as a core part of our nature. 
David said, not when my mama conceived me, she was living in sin. But from the very moment I was conceived, I was a sinner. And from then on, I'm in need of God's mercy. You see, friends, you are a product of the house you were brought up in, the father you had or didn't have, the mother you had or didn't have, the brothers or sisters who beat up on you or they just simply weren't there, the kind of environment and school you went to. All of that's true. But your struggles go deeper than that. You were born broken. And so David, when he says, I see now that I'm a sinner, that I'm I'm so messed up, doesn't go to Bathsheba. He goes back to conception. He sees that sin is something that's down deep inside. Seeing that for what it is, is the mercy of God. You see, God's mercy doesn't just say, I've made a mistake. Now feel better about yourself. Tell yourself to have good self-esteem. Tell yourself it's your parents' fault. Mercy says, but for my sin being put upon Jesus, all I deserve is hell. You see, sin is cosmic treason. Whether it's a white lie to a friend or gossip to a classmate or thoughts of lust towards the gal at the gym or the refusal to do a good deed for somebody you know needs it or simply prayerlessness. Sin is rebellion against God that deserves death. But God, because He's merciful, points it out that we would run from it to Him. Charles Spurgeon put it like this, When we deal seriously with our own sin, God will deal gently with us. When we hate what the Lord hates, He will soon make an end of it to our joy and peace. Isn't that good? David says, When I came to see this, it was like my bones inside of me were broken. But God can put me back together. Now, there's no question that King David's sin is shocking. I mean, David's sexual sin seems so out of the blue. It's like one moment he's king, he's good, he's a man after God's heart. And the next moment, he's knowingly bringing another man's wife into his bed. But that's not how sexual sin works. Never, ever. David was artistic, he was courageous, he was obedient, he was humble, he was deeply thankful for God, and oops, one day, who is this woman? That's not how it happens. That action didn't occur in a vacuum. Friends, being at the top changed David. His role as king nurtured, fed, fertilized watered heart idolatry. He became lazy. That's why the story in 2 Samuel says, when people were out to war. So when David was supposed to be out with his men, where was he? He's lounging in his underwear on the roof. His fall with Bathsheba started way back then. He thought he was above the rules. 
He thought his throne made him judge of right and wrong. Power had corrupted him. And please, the few of you here that in the room that are in this spot in life, hear me. In middle age, he forgot dependency on God and began to trust himself. There's a unique time period where you feel as though you've arrived. You've made it in career. The kids are out of the house. There's enough money in the bank. You feel like you can settle down. That's why there's not very many of you even here in the room. It's like a second adolescence kicks in. That's what happened to David. So far from merely being innocent on the roof and I just happened to see her, his heart was primed for that moment of temptation. And my dear friends, all of us, regardless of our season in life, will face unique temptations. That's why it's so important to love Christ every day. The young boy who had the courage to trust himself completely into the care of God before the giant soldier Goliath had become the middle-aged king who saw himself as self-sufficient. That's how he wound up doing what he did. Friends, that's how you and I wound up, wind up doing things we never dreamed we would do. We take one step away from God towards self-reliance and then another and then another and then another and then another. And then we wake up to realize, oh my gosh, I've done what I never dreamed I would do. It matters little how much Bible fact is up here if you're not constantly fleshing it back down into your heart. None of us are above this. David became aware of a sin and it crushed him. He described it like broken bones. But then he became aware. And he saw that awareness as the mercy of God, as the gift of God, as a precious thing to behold. He admitted what he'd done wrong and he called on God to be merciful to him. My dear friend, does that describe the posture of your heart? Or do you minimize, do you ignore, do you excuse, do you stuff away, do you blame? Are you humble before him? Is your heart tender to the mercy of God? You can't confess sin that you don't see. And so when God makes you aware of it, run to Him. So God's mercy is seen in the rebuke. Then it's seen in the awareness of sin. And then, wonderfully, it's seen in the forgiveness that David was offered. David, because he confessed those sins to God, found the mercy of God in forgiveness. Now on this side of the cross, we understand far more about how we find forgiveness in God than David could have. Isn't that a cool thought? We see now what David could not have seen. So there's these really strange verses that some of you have heard before, like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a weird verse. Now we can't spend long on it, but let me just point this out to you. So faithful makes sense, right? God's a faithful God. God says, I will forgive you. So if you say, 
God, I messed up and I'm seeking your forgiveness, God will give it. Always. 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 I get that. That makes sense. But there's that other word. Just. Now hold on a second. If sin is cosmic treason against God, a God who never, ever, 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 ever fails, and He says, you're not supposed to either, then how in the world is it just for God to forgive? Like, isn't that the most unjust thing He could do? If I'm a sinner and He's God, how is it just for Him to say, okay, I forgive. It's just because there's no double jeopardy with God. It's just because when Jesus hung like this, all of the sins you will ever commit were put on Him. And all of the fury of God's judgment that you deserve was put on Him. So God says, if you will come to me and you will turn from that sin to me, then I will apply the grace and forgiveness and righteousness and love of Christ to you. So I have no more wrath to give. I I spent it all. It's all been put on Christ. Are you dead? You ought to be doing jumping jacks, shouting and screaming at this point. That is wonderful news. It's not just that God's faithful. It's that what you deserve has been used up already. So it's just for God to forgive. There's so many implications for that. I wish we could hang out the day there. Like, so many of you punish yourselves long after God has forgiven. Does that make sense? The great God of mercy sent Nathan to David. He opened David's heart to see the sin. And then he forgave him. But mercy is so great it's not even done yet. Mercy then wounds up into superior joy. And here we get to a matter of great importance. There is no mention of sex anywhere in this psalm. Did you catch that? None. The S word doesn't show up. Nor does adultery. Nor does lust. It's simply not there. Why? Was David afraid to say it? Of course not. Why is it not there? The whole setting for this psalm is David's adultery with a married woman. But David never says, God help me with my sexual temptation. I think I'm going to explode. God, give me sexual restraint. God, help me see women as sisters and mothers, not objects of gratification. God, help me desire closeness with you more than sexual gratification. Not a single word like that in Psalm 51. Those are all good things to pray, by the way. 
But they're not there. Why? Because sexual sin is a symptom. It's not the disease. It's a fruit, not the root. Friends, in this culture, in this day and age, there will be hardly any of us that make it to our graves without either being sexually traumatized, so the, the victim, or the person that took advantage of somebody else. Hardly any of us. When you have fallen sexually, why? Well, at the core, it's not for a few minutes of pleasure. That's not why. It's because you think that what you can find there is greater than what you can find with God. David lost the joy of his salvation. God wasn't precious to him anymore. He didn't delight himself in God. He wasn't glad in God. In a word, he lost his awe. Therefore, Bathsheba served not merely as a beautiful woman to lust after, but more like a little god to be worshipped. David didn't just give her his body, he gave her his soul. That's why he says in verse 4, look at that again. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Hold on now. Didn't he take another man's wife? Didn't he impregnate her? And then didn't he kill him? I would say those qualify as sins against another. They are, but David goes down to the bottom. He says, God, really, it is sin against you. How can that be? How could that sin be against God alone? It's because at the bottom, this isn't about sex. Maybe my mama was right. Sex isn't really about sex. Before he slept with Bathsheba, David had already committed spiritual adultery. He was already unfaithful to God. Don't you hear that in what he's saying? Why did I need her arms around me? He had to have asked himself. Why did I so crave her breast against my chest, her kisses and her affection? God, I needed her because you were no longer the object of my greatest affection. That's why. I drifted from you, God, towards others. I began worshiping power and believing I could do whatever I wanted. I thought I'd arrived. I disregarded you. I forgot you. I wasn't thinking about your love and your goodness. So I went looking for it somewhere else. The Christian community has done an absolutely horrible job of helping us understand sexual temptation. We have dealt with the symptom and we're paying the price for it. I want to ask you today to consider your own heart much down deeper. Please, please. Friends, porn and fantasy and nasty novels and filthy movies and one-night stands and friends with benefits literally surround us. We fail not simply because we like pleasure. We fail because we believe lies. 
And we look to people to cover up shame, guilt, regret, fear. And dadgummit, it works for a minute. I'm more convinced than ever that the only way we don't fall prey to sexual sin is that we have a vibrant, loving relationship with Christ. That's the only hope we have. David came to see that there's superior joy in God. He came to see it's better. And this was a dude who could have any woman he wanted. All it took was a phone call. But he said, God's better. There's more joy in God. Friends, God's commands towards us, they're they're for our good. God's not a prude. God's not looking to limit your pleasure in life. The very best idea you've come up with in the bedroom wasn't your idea. It was God's. He's not a grumpy old man. His commands are always for our protection good. And every little joy we find here on earth, we trade it for God unless we see that that is merely meant to remind me, to to wind my heart and tune it back towards God as the great God that He is. Finally, and perhaps this is the most important and surprising thing in the whole passage, and I've got to do it quickly. God's mercy is seen in mission. Listen to this, because you probably didn't catch it the first time. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. All of that makes sense. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. To what end? So my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O God. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Let me say it frankly because we so need to hear it frankly. Sexual sin ought to end in praise and mission. If you think because I've done this and this and this or this and this and this have been done to me sexually, then I am no good then I cannot be used. Then you're missing the mercy of God. Because you've blown it that bad, you know God that much better, which makes you more useful as an evangelist, which makes you more equipped to praise Him. David praised God when he experienced mercy. You, my friend, can do the same. His sin led him to a rich experience of the mercy of God. So sexual sin ought to end in praise. Does that sound crazy to you? It does to me, and that ought to tell us how far we are away from really getting the gospel. John Piper put it like this, David is not content to be forgiven... He's not content to be clean. He's not content to be elect. He's not content to have a right spirit. He's not content to be joyful in God by himself. He will not be content until his broken life serves the healing of others. Please don't be so selfish that you miss that. 
God's mercy is not simply for you. It is given to you that you would be a conduit for it to go to others. My dear friend, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, if you've not trusted Christ with your failures and you've not been given right standing with God, please hear this. The message of the church, the message of the gospel, the truth of Scripture is not those who do well get God. It is that those who know failure well and turn from it get God. And Christians, there is no sin in your past, present, or future that is not already covered by a better king than King David. That king is King Jesus, and he's reigning now. Let's pray. God, this is an urgent message. It's urgent not because I've said it. It's important not because we sit in a church building. It's urgent because we are people with massive sexual carnage in pasts. And if not that, there's plenty of other opportunities that we have fallen prey to. God, may we know your mercy like David. May we not leave this room unchanged today. In Jesus' name I pray.